Welcome to The Legal Tea, the podcast where interview lawyers bring beyond corporate law. Each week you'll hear about the practice area, the work that they do, and the roads they've taken to get there. I'm your host, Max Heberg. How's everyone doing this week? You know, it's incredible how quickly Christmas decorations start going out. It's as if the second Halloween's over, it's time to start tracking out those Christmas tunes and those Christmas lights. I went out last week to eat dinner, and I ended up having a Christmas dinner in a restaurant fully decked out with Christmas trees and Christmas tunes. And this was mid-November, so needless to say, I felt a bit awkward about it. Unfortunately, not all things are joyous with the coming Christmas season, as across Central and Eastern Europe, COVID is making a comeback. Talk about the one reunion tour nobody wants to see. Lockdowns and restrictions are rolling out again, and here I am sitting in my flat just hoping that we can have a normal Christmas this year. But when it comes to COVID, the hardest people hit are the hospitals and the healthcare system. What happens to people awaiting life-saving treatments or people seeking diagnoses? when the system that carries these out is overwhelmed by a pandemic. Which is why this week we'll be exploring the area of medical negligence with Kimberly Nightingale, a medical negligence solicitor at Erwin Mitchell. In the episode, we discuss what medical negligence is, deconstructing the ambulance chaser myth behind lawyers in this arena, and how COVID may cause a spike in medical negligence litigation in the long term. Outside medicine, we discuss Kimberly's own career journey in the practice area, starting out as a paralegal and making her way all the way to now becoming a post-qualified solicitor. We also talk about the benefits of working at a regional office as opposed to the London office, and the importance of people skills in an area where you deal with so many different stakeholders. So without further ado, sit back, relax, brew yourself a cuppa, and enjoy the show. Good afternoon, Kimberly. Welcome to the Legal Tea Podcast. How are you doing today? Hi. Um, yes, I'm doing well. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing very well. So, Kimberly, you and I, we've had kind of conversations back and forth, but for the audience listening in today, why don't you tell them a little bit about yourself? We have, yeah. So, um, I'm a medical negligence solicitor. Um, I've been working in this field for around six years or so now. Um, started as a paralegal trainee and then solicitor doing medical negligence apart from sort of the training here and there a little bit in different areas um I studied law at Newcastle University uh, which I loved um then I moved to our Sheffield office when I started working then moved to Leeds so I'm now based in our Leeds office but obviously with the pandemic and everything working from home at the moment and um I suppose in my spare time um I love playing netball and walking the new addition to our family which is a cockapoo which I think is common what's happened in lockdown at the minute as well <laughs> <laughs> honestly uh life's best friend always having a pet especially during lockdown when it gets when going outside becomes more restricted but um hopefully hopefully those days are behind us and we're moving forward grasping greater freedom as days go by <laughs> definitely yeah <laughs> so I mean, you know, as you said, paralegal, trainee solicitor, now solicitor, all in kind of medical negligence. What is medical negligence? So it's a it's a really broad area, really. Um, and the, the crux of it is, is it's care that's fallen below what's called a reasonable standard. And, and that has then caused injury. So um, in terms of examples, it can be delays in diagnosis of conditions, misdiagnosis of conditions incorrect treatment that's been provided by perhaps GPs or hospitals or private healthcare providers, things like that. So um, I act for the patients um, and there's a high threshold to overcome to prove that there's been medical negligence. And we often have situations, for example, where there may have been a delay, but that not necessarily has affected the outcome. So that wouldn't mean that there's been negligence. So there are hurdles to overcome. But yeah, essentially things which have gone wrong, possibly in hospital and things, um, which has then caused the, the patient injury, which which could have been avoided. That's that's sort of what it is in a nutshell. 
And so how has how has COVID affected all this? I mean, you know, pandemic overwhelmed the NHS hospitals. And now that as we're slowly exiting from it, you see news reports about, you know, the increase in delays in, you know, getting an appointment with your GP or even kind of life-saving surgeries. So has your firm started to feel kind of the effects of, of COVID in relation to your practice? Yeah, so it's slowly sort of coming through. I think we're at the early sort of stages of it. Um, where patients haven't had the opportunity perhaps to have face-to-face appointments because that's just how it was through COVID. Um, So we have to look at the repercussions of that and whether or not the absence of those face-to-face meetings, discussions, examinations, that sort of thing has had had an effect on the outcome or whether they may have received appropriate advice over the telephone. Um, A lot of GPs are doing telephone consultations and I think a lot of GP providers um, and surgeries were allowing patients to send photos in um, of things. So that, that could be a way of like looking at, I don't know, spots, moles, that sort of thing. Although it's not, not the best to see it with examinations, they try and do the best they can. So we've not got to the stage of claims in relation to that yet, but we've certainly had the, those sorts of elements coming through it, which we would need to look at. Um, and, and as well with, difficulty with waiting times for operations as well and um, obviously COVID took priority um, so it's been really difficult for patients not being ha- able to have those operations and again those sorts of things are filtering through but we haven't really got to the end stage as to whether or not it was negligent or not I suppose that'll be really interesting to see um, and another example really is those which have had claims ongoing and then COVID's hit, like their physiotherapy has been delayed. So again, that'll be interesting to see sort of, is anyone at fault for that? Is it the hospital's fault or, I don't know, it's going to be really, really difficult. It's been a really difficult time for everyone, but that's those are definitely the sort of things that we've had which are coming through um, where we'll need to really look at that carefully, I think. Yeah, no, I mean... Academically, it, it all sounds fascinating and really exciting, but I can imagine from a practitioner's point of view, it's inherently frustrating and also stressful because it's that, you know, there are no straight lines. You know, there was no COVID manual. And I can imagine there is no medical negligence solicitor's manual yeah. for handling claims in relation to a pandemic. No, yeah. And I wonder if it will, if these sorts of things will end up going to court eventually, because a lot of claims settle outside of court. Um, but I think there's going to have to be some which goes to court to just try and find that balance um, as to because it's not really anyone's fault. Um, you know, COVID that, that that's just hit and these delays have come as a result of it. But is it also the patient's fault that they've not been able to sort of improve within that year, 18 months, not able to get physio, that sort of thing, not able to have their operations? Does anyone We'll have to sort of pay for that, I suppose. I don't know. It's really hard. So we'll just have to sort of see what what comes through with that. But we're all, even though we're we're patient lawyers, um, we're all very much supportive of the the NHS and completely understand what everyone's going through. And uh, another impact of it has been the delays in litigation generally, not necessarily with patients' injuries. Claims take a lot longer to go through because obviously the NHS is so so under pressure at the moment it's been really difficult to sort of bring claims to a conclusion and we've all been very understanding of that and allowing that extra time and things and, and serve the clients so that's been really good and I think it's been a positive thing moving forward that we're able to work possibly better with defendants with the trusts and insurers because everyone's on that sort of mutual understanding that it's just been so difficult for everyone generally which I think has been really good. So it's built at least some level of, of empathy between all parties concerned. I think so. Uh, definitely for me anyway. Um, I think before it could have been a bit more sort of harsh and put through. This, this is this and that's that. Um, but now, even with us lawyers, there's been so many struggles with families working from home um, and having to isolate and things. And I think those things, things are just so... You just have to have a lot of empathy with not just your patients and your clients, with just as humans, really. So I think it's been a good collaborative working relationship, really, in my experience. 
And one of the things that you said that, that caught my interest was this idea of, you know, whose fault is it or, you know, who pays the cost? And I think this, this goes to what I imagine is the elephant in the room with medical negligence yeah. is that it typically gives off the characterization that, you know, solicitors and medical negligence are ambulance chasers, you know, that at the end of the day, it's trying to, to find uh, the doctor to be blamed in order for the patient to be compensated. Yeah. But at the same time, you have that against a backdrop right now of, you know, protect the NHS, you know, clap for our workers and all these different movements. So how would you, you know, obviously in your experience and all these years in medical negligence, really, you know, respond to that characterization? Yeah, I think, well, especially when I first started, like learning about medical negligence I also had those sort of queries reservations thinking well I've got friends who are doctors I don't want to be suing those and then you sort of understand that there is such a high threshold to prove that there's been medical negligence and it's not just sort of oh there's just been a reasonable mistake or a risk those sorts of things are generally fine and we we can't say that that's been negligence because there's always risks of operations but it's one of those where it's it's such a high threshold and we can only take on claims where we think that there's merit in it um, and we can investigate it. Um, and, yeah, I can see why there, there can be that impression out there. Um, but what I think we have to remember is that it is life-changing injuries, which could have been avoided. And a lot of the time, the trust recognise that those injuries could have been avoided. Um, and another side to my job role is that trusts often welcome training sessions as well um, so it is a collaborative approach we're trying to reduce claims for both the hospitals and, and for us as well so we can try and get involved in increasing training for them and that sort of thing and showing them the the main sort of the mistakes what are cropping up and how they can be avoided and things so um but it, it's not all bad is I suppose what I'm trying to say <laughs> you talked about life-altering injuries and so in your experience, what is it that, that clients typically look for when when they instruct you on, on pursuing litigation against uh, trust? Um, so a, a lot of them, really, in my experience, just want an acknowledgement or an apology from the hospital um, to say that this wouldn't have happened. And that, that's often a lot more than the compensation itself. So the, the compensation is essentially to try and put people back into the position, but, but for the negligence, so if they've lost earnings or if they need a house adapting for their disability, for example, that sort of thing. But more often than not, it's the chasing of an apology, if we can get one, it is what's really on their mind. And it's such a weight off their shoulder when admissions are made. Um, and even the flip side, um, if, if we've investigated and we find that, that there's not been any negligence, that's also a weight off their shoulder as well because they've, they've got some sort of reassurance then that everything was done right and they can go away thinking, okay, no one wants to blame. That is what it is. Um, so I feel like that's, that's more important to a lot of people than, than the compensation. But again, on the, on the flip side, it's really important for people to be able to access physiotherapy, speech and language therapy, counselling, that sort of thing. And compensation can obviously help pay for the cost of that. So essentially, you know, major factor kind of compensation, sorry, not compensation, closure. The, the um, idea yeah, of closure. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's from my experience anyway, that that's, that's a lot of, lot of what's in it. Uh, and that's also a sort of highlight for me, I suppose, just when we get when we get the answers to the, the client's questions as to what went wrong. And through our investigations, we get a copy of the medical records and things. So the client can see what happens when they can't remember what happened as well. Um, and it just helps with their understanding of things, whichever way that may go in terms of a claim. And in terms of the the trust and the hospitals themselves, you, you said that they kind of welcomed uh, training sessions. So what is their typical uh, approach or, or reaction to, to any of these issues? I mean, obviously, if it, if it ends up in litigation, it means that they feel quite differently about the story. Yeah. But um, yeah, what would you say is their general attitude? Um, so we've had people before, the, before COVID go into um, hospital departments and, and put on training things and a lot of that is welcomed and throughout the pandemic we've 
had medical experts who were offered um, doctors practicing in the NHS put on sessions that we've arranged and through the form of webinars and things. So that's gone out to um, a lot of uh, practitioners. And there's a lot of attendance of of doctors, nurses, midwives, that sort of thing, because they're wanting to know sort of what's going what's going wrong out there what can they do better the patient experience um and to to minimize litigation um so more often than not it seems to be welcomed um quite a lot it sounds like you know the, the hospitals and the trusts you know they want to make sure that they're doing the best they can or they are kind of you know up to up to scratch you know, if there yeah. are any cases that fall you know under the cracks they want to kind of rectify and course correct yeah, definitely. And there's also systems in place at hospitals where if they think, oh, something's really gone, gone wrong here, they'll investigate it themselves before even litigation is even considered or brought from a client. Um, so so when that happens, we can obviously request a copy of that report. And it, those reports are really, really helpful and interesting because it shows that possibly what went wrong, uh, the action points, the training needs, uh, and they'll have sort of set times to for, for them themselves in the hospital to follow that up um which is which is really good when things like that happen because it shows to the clients as well that things can be done about it to try and prevent things from happening from someone else so they do they do like to learn from things like that and you said that typically the the, the threshold for a medical negligence claim is is quite high so why is that or what is the threshold well i think it's to to stop an abundance of claims and uh, from coming through, uh, and for there's going to be a lot of possibly delays in diagnosis and things generally, or symptoms aren't picked up as quickly as perhaps they should. But it's whether or not that out, like the outcome, could have been different or avoided, um, which is the main thing. Um, and as, and the threshold really is that we have to look at a reasonable body of practitioners and whether or not. The standard was up to scratch with that so it's not just sort of the gold standard or anything it's that there is that standard to overcome um, and we have the medical experts on board who can consider whether or not on the balance of probabilities things could have been different for the patient so we, we do have a, fil- a filter system where uh, a lot of things sort of couldn't have been avoided and, and we know that um, and we're happy to explain that to clients as well so I, I think it comes across as though as soon as there's a mistake, what happens, you could claim that that really isn't the case in practice. It reminds me, as, as we're talking from my uh, law school days, uh, studying tort about, I think it was Greg and Scott, the one about kind of the cancer diagnosis and what were the, mm. the percentage chance of probability from like, oh, yeah. if you'd been diagnosed a couple of weeks earlier and the interpretation of that. So I can imagine it's not. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah, that's really interesting as well. And with um with cancer cases especially, I do I do find them really interesting because we have to ask experts what what would the likely of prognosis or stage or grading of the cancer have been had the patient been diagnosed six, twelve, eighteen months earlier and they're able to work backwards to you know, to put in a probable outcome and I just find that so interesting how they've got the knowledge and expertise to to do that from from their experience and from the literature out there. And so typically, what does your week-to-week look like as a medical nitrogen solicitor? Um, So it really varies. We have a a rough number of of cases that we all sort of deal with um, to make sure we're not sort of overstretched and can provide the best advice to the clients. And so... This week, for example, there's some witness statements that I need to finalise and, and some more to take. Um, we can have conferences, which are meetings set up, which are virtually at the moment, on video with the client, the medical expert, the barrister, and we all sit there and discuss the, the points in the case, the allegations that we'll put forward to the other side, if there are any, um, and things like that, and go through the expert reports, which I find really interesting. Um, a lot of it isn't just sort of paperwork and words. It's about sort of valuing the claims as well, which is quite interesting. So we get to use our research skills and 
have a look at other cases out there to see what they've been valued at, what they've settled there, and then advise the clients on that. Um, a lot of it is telephone calls to clients and just touching base and how they are, getting updates from them, which is which is really interesting as well. I think it's really important to keep touching base with clients and not just updating them on the claim itself and just to understand how they're getting on because it's such a such an ordeal going through a litigation process anyway and on top of that they've got the injury that they're having to live with so things will be going on in the background with that whether they need help at home um so yeah I think it's really important to sort of keep touching base as and when we can it, it sounds very much it. you've definitely got an emphasized kind of client facing role. Yeah. But it's quite interesting, as you were saying, you know, especially in the conferences where you meet with the medical experts, the other solicitors, and kind of barristers, that you tend to kind of, it's people facing role almost. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so it's video, we're doing video calls at the moment, but before COVID, it would be face to face for the bigger meetings like that. Um, and if, if clients want to come in for the meetings, if there's anything sort of significant to discuss or any sort of meeting documents to discuss, then we'd often invite them in. So it's easier, I think, face-to-face a lot of the time to just sit there and have those questions answered and not feel like you're rushed a bit if you're on the phone. Um, so, yeah, it's a bit of both, really. So we'll all invite them in. If they want to come in, they can. Um, but then quick updates are just generally by by email and, and telephone and that will keep the cost down for them as well. <laughs> and how do you, how, how have you found it kind of, you know, coordinating, you know, between the medical expert and the barristers preparing for, for, for trial and also obviously kind of relaying all this information back to your client and getting from your client kind of, you know, what their, what their wishes are. Yeah. So you have to be really, really organizing and setting it all up, making sure everyone's free at the right time. Um, so that's a lot of the part of our job role as well, setting up these meetings, making sure everyone's free, making sure everyone's got the, the link ready to join a few days before double checking that they're happy and they've got the link to join. Um, and then we have to prepare documents for the barrister. So we call them instructions to, to counsel. So counsel is like the barrister. Um, and yeah, so they're quite lengthy and we have to summarise the case to them summarise the client's concerns, summarise the experts' views. So they've got that all sort of there. Even though they have the documents themselves, it's good to give them a, a highlighted summary um, and just make sure that the client knows what the meeting's for um, and making sure if they've got any questions that they can be answered as and when throughout the meeting or before or after and things like that. And and generally for the experts, they, they've done this thing day in day out so they they know what these conferences are going to be about um and so all they need to do really is just review their medical report and just say whether their opinion is the same or or not or you know things like that so not too much work to do on on that front with them i know you you said obviously there are medical experts involved in the case but you know as a medical negligence solicitor are you required to have some sort of kind of medical expertise um i would say not really but I think it definitely helps to be interested in it. And, and obviously it helps sort of as you go through your career, you pick up the medical knowledge. But to get into the role, you don't have to sort of have a medical degree or anything like that. Um, I didn't even do medical law at university. Um, so it didn't, you know, it didn't prevent me from going into this career path. Um, I really enjoyed biology at school and college. Uh, learn about the human body and things like that so I've always had that sort of interest there but no you don't don't need to have any sort of pre-existing medical knowledge but you just, you just pick things up as and when. That's a relief obviously you know as a, as a law student say that didn't you know from the outset know that they had a interest in medical negligence and might not have taken it as an option having thought that medical law you needed to have some sort of medicine background uh definitely (laughs) no you don't yeah I suppose I just sort of fell into this area of law I knew that I enjoyed you know as I say learning about the human body and when we did sport at school learning the theory side of things and and how it worked so it just so happens that that sort of fell into what I'm working in now, which I really enjoy. 
And so what would you say is the typical kind of life cycle of a medical negligence case? Um, so at the beginning, we'll do our initial call with the client and um, introduce ourselves and talk them through what the investigation process would be. And that would typically be entering into the funded agreement at the beginning. And so that's sort of what everything's um, set up from there. We'll get a copy of their medical records. We do that pretty much in every case, get a copy of their hospital records and GP records, just so we've got everything on file. Um, and then we look to instruct the, one of the medical experts. So that's often a, a doctor who um, has expertise in that field, whether it be cardiology, if they've got a heart problem, or oncology, if it's a cancer case. So we'll look to instruct whichever doctor or expert is in the right field and ask them to review the records and comment on the care received, really. And we often have to give rough time scales at that initial call give them an idea sometimes I mean it can be two three months for an expert report sometimes a bit longer and um, so it really just depends so after that expert report comes back is that at that point where you decide whether to go to trial or not or how does it how does it work so, so at that point um if the expert report comes back supportive i.e yes there's been failures in care and yes the outcome could have been avoided then we'll look to put forward our allegations towards the defendant's insurer. So that's a, a probably a three to four page document setting out the background, setting out what our allegations are. And that just means what we think has gone wrong and what could have been avoided. Uh, we send that off to the defendant's insurer. They have four months under what's called um, the pre-action protocol to respond. So that Creation protocol is the investigative stage before we issue proceedings and do the next steps of trials. So we try and do everything outside of the, the court sort of process first um, and try and settle a claim if we can before that. And it's at that point when we get a response. If, if denials are made, then we have to make a decision whether or not we have to issue the case at court and then proceed to the next steps, which will be a lengthy process, but eventually preparing for trial. And so on average, like how many of these cases do you are, are you juggling? Uh, for me at the moment, um, I think we have sort of about 30 cases at the moment uh, for me. I think some some are a bit more, um, I think particularly if they're birth injury cases, the more senior members of the team will have less um, because they take up a lot more, more time. Um, so it really just, just vary. How do you how, how do you keep track of all of them? I can imagine that if I were in your position, I'd be keeping a little uh, notebook or diary, <laughs> just kind of refreshing the facts. <laughs> oh well, they're all at different stages. So some of those will be in the really early stages, getting the records and things. Some will be a bit more a bit more progressed, um, where we're obtaining the expert report. So it's it's not like you have to deal with each case every day. It's more in stages and. And if we said to a client, okay, we're not going to get a report back in, say, three months' time, there might not be too much to do on that case in, in that period. But as long as the client's sort of up to date as to where things are at, then you can sort of work on the, the other cases. And when letters come in and things, you can just work on those. So it's, it's probably not as bad as it sounds. <laughs> <laughs> and how does that translate in terms of kind of, you know, working hours, work-life balance? I mean, I can imagine if, if a lot of the cases are at that kind of, you know, crunch straight, crunch stage going to trial and things like that, then it might get more hectic. But, yeah. you know, week to week, if you've got different cases at different stages. Yeah, it's generally really, really good. Where I work is really good um, sort of work-life balance, uh, like I, I think so personally. Um, and, it, and especially from working from home, you can get other things done sort of in the evenings without the commute. Um, but, yeah, generally... Um, you can do a nine or five day, like, and that would be fine. Uh, often people people start earlier and, and finish later, and you, know, you may work through your lunch break, and that can be quite common as well. Um, but but generally, it is it is a good work life balance. Um, and as you say, with sort of crunch time and service dead court deadlines, service deadlines, things like that. Um, I've I've spent time working a lot later just to make sure that everything's sort of in place um, for, for the service deadline and 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 that's that's okay because that's something I enjoy and it's not not like we work till 
8, 9 p.m. every day in, in, in this particular area of law. I know, I know some areas of law you can definitely, um, but, but not not here. <laughs> oh, good, good. So on on average, a nine to five and not a yeah. five to nine. Yeah, but no. <laughs> uh, the, the the peak times are obviously the times where you are required to, to stay longer and, and do more. Those yeah. are on average kind of fairly predictable in advance, yeah. I'd say. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, and it's I've never had the case where I've had to suddenly stay work until 10 o'clock at night unexpectedly or anything like that. You always sort of know in advance if if you think you're going to have to work a bit later and that, that can be because people, other people who you're waiting to hear from might be on a holiday, things like that. So that can sometimes be a bit unexpected, but you try and ask when people are going to be on holiday so you can prepare <laughs> yourself a bit as well. <laughs> and so what's been the highlight moment on the job so far? I think generally just when I've received admissions on on cases um I, and I know that sounds really cliche and that's not a, a one specific moment but every, every time there's sort of admissions on cases it's a really really sad moment for the client because they know okay things have gone wrong but also it sort of highlights that there's like a weight lifted off their shoulder and a lot of the time they say that it's like it's not all in their head and they're just thankful that there has been an apology or you know they can move forward now and get the compensation they need to adapt their home or get care and physio um and and especially at the moment when your NHS is just so busy and it's it's not their fault at all just having the extra bit of compensation means that clients can go out and get private treatment to prevent, you know, further further delays of of recovery in their recovery. Um, so I find that find that really really good, and that's always a, a highlight for me. Oh, I, I can imagine it allows them to kind of move forward with their life, and especially as you were talking about uh, compensation, or kind of retreating back earlier to the whole characterization. You know, the compensation, you know, isn't going to be used for Ferraris and mansions, but I'd imagine in the cost of, you know, paying for a physiotherapist or paying for a carer yeah. to, you know, help them live as as normal life as possible, given yeah. the conditions. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, so it's where we can only include reasonable, you know, things to claim for. And we often put that forward to the other side. And so the, these are the sorts of things that we're, looking to claim for are you happy with that and we can get early payments or we can wait until a settlement is received at the end and more often than that I do try and get early payments for them um so that's sort of like a snapshot of what will be the eventual full full payment just so they can start accessing counseling and other treatments and things or or getting whatever they need um in the meantime and that's often really helpful as well and so I can imagine, obviously, that given the, the 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 fact that you know clients come to you at a, at a very vulnerable stage, and also a very after a very traumatic event has happened to them, that it's inevitable that you develop some sort of emotional stake, uh, as well as apart from just the profession, like an emotional investment oh, yeah. into the outcome. How have you found dealing with that? I mean, obviously, when the when the case goes well and there's an admission, mm-hmm. I can imagine that's you know a huge benefit and reinforces kind of your commitment to the job. Yeah. But what about the cases when you know, unfortunately, things don't go as planned? Yeah, so that's really difficult as well. Um, we sort of get an ink then if we think it's going to go that way, um, and when an expert report comes in, if it's unsupportive, it's not just no, it doesn't meet the legal test. It's it's a good chunky report explaining why it doesn't um, and things like that. So we can summarise that to the client and we often send that out to them with our advice and the summary. And then I give them the opportunity to need to give them a call and talk them through it as well. Um, and if we can, we'll manage their expectations from earlier on um, to say that we think that there is a chance of, you know the outcome being avoided, or um, but 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 maybe not because it's just such a tight time scale. So we'll see what the expert says and comes back with. But but just so you know, it might not go in, in your favour, and if it doesn't, these will be the reasons why. Um, so I try and try for it not to be a shock to them, and try and manage their expectations as best we can. 
Um, so that often helps a bit. But you're right, you, you do build up a relationship with them. Um, and you speak to them a lot, you know what they've all gone through. Um, and sometimes it's really hard, like they some quite find it really difficult to accept. Um, and, and if that's the case, they can obviously, of course, seek advice, you know, elsewhere. And a lot of other clients are, are happy with the advice. And as I mentioned before, just feel reassured that at least someone's looked into it for them, someone's investigated it and, okay, things couldn't have been avoided. So try and sort of soften the blow a little bit for them. But it is what it is at the end of the day. If we can't prove a claim, we can't prove a claim. Um so, yeah. yeah, no, I can imagine. I think it's just more about obviously the human factor coming to terms with yeah. with, with with that reality, and also just having the the not so nice or easy job of having to convey that to the client. Yeah, there's definitely good ups and downs um, with it. Um, relaying the the bad news, and you never want to do that. And there, there are tears with it as well. Like, as you can imagine, some clients have gone through months of waiting for us to investigate and we've finally got a decision or or even if we've got supportive reports and we can't go any further because um because we have to look at value as well because it the, the court won't really allow us to issue such sort of lower value claims it's not not proportionate to so we've got those battles as well as um not just the legal tests and so what got you into medical negligence Prior, you were obviously talking about how, you know, it wasn't something that, that you initially expected, but also, you know, you've been working in this department since you were a paralegal and apart from obviously the rotations and the training contract, it almost seems as well like it's a love at first sight scenario. Well, yeah, well, for me, um, it it was, I think. Um, and I, I just got offered the paralegal role in, in the medical negligence department. And I thought, well, well, I do like um, medical law and things. So I'll just sort of see what it's like. And, and I just really enjoyed it. And I just really enjoy speaking to doctors and, you know, learning about different things. It just feels like a completely new subject that I'm working on as well. And that, that buzz hasn't really gone away for me anyway. Um, and yeah, so even when um, I was in my seat rotations, I think it helped because I'd had that experience in the medical negligence team and um, I just really looked forward to, to going back to it and continuing my career in it. So, yeah, I just sort of fell into that role and I just so happened to really, really, really enjoy it. But if if there's people out there who, you know, fall into that sort of paralegal role and and don't enjoy it and things there's there's so many other things out there and but equally I, I'm avid fan of medical <laughs> evidence so, yeah I would I would encourage you to go and try it <laughs> in terms of you know starting off in in a paralegal role you know, what have you found because a lot of uh, law graduates typically think okay you know got to get the TC because that's the end goal, essentially qualification um, and become a solicitor. But do you find any benefit in having kind of spent time first in the role as a paralegal before then ultimately becoming a trainee and then a solicitor? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I can't really compare it to anything else. You know, people who've gone and just straight into their training contracts and I don't know how they find it, but I've really learned so much and particularly because it was the same firm as well. I'm sure it would be the case if it wasn't. But just learning sort of the ropes and um, even just the computer systems and just learning how how a claim works and having that contact and experience with experts and clients and defendants and, and things like that, it's, it's really helped with me um, when I've gone into my NQ years and, and things, just having that experience behind me and, and particularly with the shock of working from home as well, I don't know how trainees do it at the moment where they're not having that experience with it you know listening in the office and listening to people but I'm really hoping that that'll get back to normal for the people for people soon but it's it's really helped me and training contracts are so difficult to get um pre and post pandemic um and it didn't you know it, it took me a few years to to be able to secure one um and I'm really thankful I had the opportunity to do the paralegal work whilst I sort of gained experience and before securing my training contract. So I think it's been been a real win, really. And I think that's so important um, because obviously, as, as as we've talked before, um, 
law is one of those things where, you know, straight from Freshers Week, you're already being told, you know, think about your career before you've had a chance to open up a legal textbook. Yeah. And it's, you know, open days, vacation schemes, training contracts. And it's 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 hard to really take a step back and, and realize, you know, it's okay to actually enjoy uni first or, you know, to to have a job you know, a couple of years after graduation and, you know, training contract. I, I think I was looking at the, the law society or somewhere a statistic that the average age of qualification was 28 or 29, which obviously, you know, implies that people typically get a training contract or start a training contract when they're in their mid twenties. So I think it's, it's very important for people to, to realize that, you know, sometimes things take time. And, and it sounds obviously in your case that, that it worked for the benefit because you had this time to work as a paralegal, learn the ropes, learn the infrastructure, learn uh, your firm systems so that when you do start the training contract, you hit the ground running. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think I definitely fell into the trap at university where, uh, like say in Freshers Week and really early on, it, uh, we sort of got plucked with the big commercial firms, which is which is great. Like they've they've got their presence out there, and if, if that's sort of in you and your nature, that's that's really good. I, but I suppose for me, I, I knew that I just wanted to work sort of one to one with clients and and have that sort of that sort of area of work for me. Um, and I just felt a bit lost at university. There wasn't really much much out there where we were getting told about that sort of thing. And and I and I did sort of go to all the sort of open days and things with the with the more finance based firms and just because I feel like that's what you had to do. Um, but it's really important for, for students and graduates to know out there that there are sort of, there's so much choice out there and you, you shouldn't feel pressured or stuck to do one way or the other. Um, so just just take your time and just have a look and do your research out there as to what sort of thing you think you'll find interesting. I think that's, that's really important. That's something I didn't do early on, which I wasn't really aware of, which I wish I'd have had that advice early on as well. And also, if you don't mind me asking, because an, another thing I, I find interesting is, you know, you've worked in, in the Sheffield office and in the Leeds office. So you obviously worked in kind of regional offices. And I was wondering kind of in your experience, because obviously, you know, the commercial firms at university have a big presence and the, the emphasis seems to be London, 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 London. So I want to have some kind of, you know, some insight into what working at a regional office is like. Yeah, so... So I really, really enjoyed it. Um, I, I'm actually from Norfolk, so I've not sort of returned back there since university because I've really enjoyed being up north. Um, so uh, Sheffield was um, was a choice because it was the the firm's head office, which I sort of was interested in, um, and it was it was a really good base, um, and it was like it's, it's just a really good city and. Uh, you can just go to London on your weekends and I see my friends there and things. So I had a bit of sort of both. Um, and yeah, the opportunity arose in the, the Leeds office. And I think it's it's good because you get, so if I'm working in the Leeds office, your clients are generally within the Leeds sort of postcode. So um, just sort of all those surrounding areas. Um, and then the same with, with Sheffield as well. That would be sort of like Chesterfield and Nottinghamshire and, and things like that in the in what's called the Sheffield postcode. Um, so you get clients where they're not sort of too far away. And if you've got meetings, you can go and travel and meet them at home. And it's not too far for them to come into the office. And it's it's nice for you and them to have that close client contact with a sort of regional, regional office base. So that's that's a real perk from it as well. But again, you know, it sounds as well that the work doesn't become any less interesting because it's original. In fact, it seems that you've benefited from kind of oh, more yeah. intimate kind of, you know, one-on-one, you know, client client relationship. Yeah, definitely. And it's not just people in London who have medical <laughs> injuries. Like, you know, it happens all over the country. Um, so, and hospitals everywhere. So you've got that. Uh, what you would call interesting work um, everywhere, really. So whatever sort of city you're in or town or uh, high street, um, this area of law, you're always going to get um, a similar sort of um, 
injuries and claims but even though I say similar they all are all completely different because everyone's different so it's always very interesting yeah no of course uh so it sounds I mean essentially uh correct me if I'm wrong but you know if you wanted to enjoy London you could especially you know in Sheffield you can enjoy the social side side of London but not have to suffer from the the living difficulties and the, and the work difficulties of actually living in London yeah and the expense of living in London I suppose <laughs> and parking is a lot better really yeah you know? fantastic so what skills would you recommend that people develop in interest of working in medical negligence um so i think because it's a really like personable area of law you have to have a lot of compassion and be be quite approachable i think and just be able to listen to clients so um i suppose a good example might be just general work experience and illegal work experience is really difficult to, to get. So don't sort of put pressure on yourself if you can't can't get it or you can't get as much as you want of it. But just general work experience. So customer, customer focus, you know, working in bars, restaurants, customer service tills at, you know, the local Tesco, Asda, things like that is really good experience of just dealing with customers and listening to their concerns. Um, and I think that's a real, real skill that you you have to have as well, being in this area of law, um, and and also the organisational side of things as well, with arranging conferences, meetings, just making sure everyone's got what they need, making sure you meet deadlines and things as well. And I know that sounds really cliche to say be organised, but the, the more experience that you can get in you know different scenarios and different practical scenarios of work the, the better i think and now i cannot I, I cannot uh agree with you more i mean you know i'm, I'm 24 and, and currently doing my lpc and i'm still <laughs> beating myself over <laughs> about not being enough organized so one can never be too organized in my opinion i think when you have other people relying on you it just sort of <laughs> makes you be more organized anyway not not necessarily for yourself because i mean i'm the same <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> fantastic now Previously, we talked about um, the TCs and the difficulty of, of getting a TCs. Now, you know, T- the, the difficulty hasn't gone anywhere. In fact, you know, as, as you said before, and um, it's gotten more difficult. Um, you know, there, there are less opportunities specifically for kind of non-commercial roles. And it can put off a lot of kind of law students and, and law graduates looking to get a job in the market. So I was wondering, you know, in, in your experience, you know, your career journey as well, what words of recommendation you'd have? I just think really keep going at it. And for me, it did take a few years to, to secure that training contract. And I could have I could have stopped when I saw some friends decide to pursue different routes who also did the law degree with me. Um, so some some went off and did um, accounting and things like that, which which they thought that's 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 more for them, which is great. But I sort of had in my head that this this is really for me and I really want to sort of do do this and, and do law um, and something to do with the personal legal services or even though I wasn't too sure what. Um, I did my LPC straight after uni because I, I just didn't think I could just have a break and go back to it if I'm honest and um, so I thought oh, I'll get that out of the way um, and I just think just just keep going at it and and just believe in yourself and not everything happens first time and it all happens for a reason. I, I was a bit unsure taking my first paralegal role thinking, will I ever get a training contract? And and it all works out looking back now. It, it's just really good experience, even though you might think at the time that you're a bit of a, a failure perhaps. You're definitely not. But you, I, I had those thoughts. You think, am I ever going to get there? And you will. You know, just, it just takes time. And as you say, the age of qualifying is is going up and that's not a bad thing. I couldn't agree with you more once again. I mean, it reminds me what you're saying about, you know, just, just keep at it. Um, reminds me of that quote from Finding Nemo, you know, just keep swimming, oh, just, yeah. uh, <laughs> just just keep on going. And, and especially what you were saying about, you know, the thoughts, I think we all have moments of self-doubt. It's inevitable, especially when, you know, we're in such a competitive industry yeah. where you know the, the, there's just a lot of competition in order to get get these roles and the imposter syndrome likes to creep up from time to time but 
Anyways, usually I like to end these podcasts on a, on a bit of a lighter note. Um, so, Kimberly, you were to- talking to us during the episode about how much you loved uh, medical negligence. Now I want to hear from you what subject from law school you hated, what you disliked. Oh, um, oh, I don't want to put anyone off. <laughs> I, well, uh, if I'm honest, at university, I really didn't enjoy family law. And I think that's because it was very, very much theory-based. Um, a lot of history in it. I wasn't the biggest history fan at school. But I think on reflection and speaking to my colleagues in family law, I think I would have really enjoyed it in practice. But it was just at university. It just wasn't for me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's so true in terms of the um, the the academic and practice. I mean, with with other episodes, I've I've learned that you know these can be two different realities. Absolutely, um, I was talking with a with a contentious trust and dispute solicitor, and found out that you know what it's like in practice is nothing like it was in the days of equity. Oh yeah, um, in law school, I, I really enjoyed the legal practice course. If I'm honest, and a lot I think people go either way. I. I enjoyed university, but I wasn't the biggest fan of the subjects and things because a lot of it was theory based. Yeah. Um, yeah. And when it was the legal practice course, that's that's all obviously practical things and the form filling and what you actually do in practice. And that's what I really enjoyed. And then a lot of people found that boring. So maybe maybe it's just me, but <laughs> <laughs> it's just it's just about taste, I guess. Yeah. At the end of the day. Well, Kimberly, thank you so much for joining the podcast. If any of our audience listeners have any questions and want to reach out to you, can they? And if so, how? Yeah, no, of course. Yeah. So uh, my full name is Kimberly Nightingale. You can find me on LinkedIn. Um, I've got a Twitter presence as well. Um, so feel free to, to contact me on there. Fantastic. Well, there you have it, folks. Thank you so much, Kimberly. No problem. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. Well, that's show, folks. If you enjoyed learning about medical negligence and want to know more, feel free to reach out to Kimberly. We've linked a LinkedIn profile in the show notes below. Special thanks to our unsung heroes for the week, Claire Herberg for editing and producing the episode, and Matt Gedrich for the absolute bang of a theme song. Enjoying legal tea? Like our exquisite brew? Have a knack for social media marketing and outreach? And are an avid tea drinker? Well, Legal Tea is hiring. Become the marketer at Legal Tea. Help spread our exquisite brew all across the country into different universities. Help us both inform and inspire law students and law graduates to take advantage of the career paths of today, but also those of tomorrow. If this sounds like an opportunity you want to take advantage of, send us an email at hello at legaltea.uk or DM us on our social media platforms at legaltea.uk. Till next time.